These are the daily lectionary comments for Ash Wednesday, on which we begin our yearly trip to the scriptures. And we're going to look first at Genesis chapter 1, the beginning of all things. And then we're going to look at Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Genesis chapter 1. I think the thing that we have to bear in mind first before we get into any of the details here, is the, the religious background and backdrop, the metaphysical assumptions that were near universal in the ancient world at the time that Moses is writing this. Genesis chapter 1 is a highly polemical document. And what I mean by polemical is it is making a strong argument against other things. It was universally believed in the age of Moses that there were many, many gods. And that these gods were manifested in various and sundry ways in the things that were in creation. The stars, the sun, the moon, the wind, the clouds, the earth, the rocks, the mountains, and so forth, are all manifestations of the gods. And, and the gods are very much like we are, except that they are very much larger and very much stronger. They are so strong that they can lift a mountain. They are so strong that they can rearrange stars. They are so strong that they can bear the earth on their back. They are very strong, but they basically work the same way we do, except they're just stronger and smarter, and so they can just do a great deal more things. And they have histories, too. The gods, as we presently see them, got that way through various things that happened in the past, and oftentimes were begotten by other gods, and there will be even an ancestry of gods. This was just universally understood, and that the gods were to be worshipped in the things that are around us, in the trees, in the streams, in the rivers, in the oceans, in the clouds, in the sky especially. I can't impress upon you enough how universal this was. So that when Moses begins to write Genesis chapter 1, it is an absolute denial of almost everything that everybody had ever believed. So we could spend a lot of time, obviously, here in this reading. Just going to hit a few key points. First off, in the beginning, God created God, one God. He created the expression, the Latin expression, ex nihilo, out of nothing. God did not stumble upon stuff and then make the present universe out of what he found. There was nothing. There was only him, and he made it. And that God did not make things the way the gods made things. The gods made things the way you and I make things, and that is through effort and energy, but they have a lot of brain power and energy to make great and wonderful things. We make small and less wonderful things. But God does not work that way. He merely speaks things into existence. And even then, I don't want you to get the impression that he had to utter something. 
To say that God said is really an expression only of what God's will is. So the way God creates is, uh, the scripture says, and God said, let there be. And it was so. That's how God creates. He wills it. It happens. There is no intermediary steps. There's no expenditure of energy to make sure that what he wills comes about. That's the way it is with us. I want the house clean. I make my plans, expend energy, and clean the house. God merely wills, and it comes to pass. So that's one thing that we need to recognize is that God stands breathtakingly alone and has absolute mastery over all things. What he creates is not subject to whatever happened before or what could happen or what might happen or what needs to happen in what order. It is entirely subject to one thing only, and that is God's will. And when I say ex nihilo, out of nothing, it's really not out of nothing. It's out of the will of God that things happen. And not only do they happen, but they keep on happening. As long as God continues to will that this present creation continue to go on, it continues to go on. That's what creation looks like in this breathtaking monotheistic. I mean, there is just one God, not just one God for us, but utterly there are no other gods but this one. That's one thing that we should take from Genesis chapter one. Another thing is the repeated expression, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. We'll take that up again tomorrow. But that the things that God created were good. They were exactly as he intended them to be. They were what they were supposed to be. The creation uh, uh, as God initially made it, was just as it should be. Also, the creation was made in the midst of things. Notice that if God made a tree, the tree was already full grown. He didn't make a seed and then cause it to grow really fast. He simply makes a tree full grown with seed already in it. Animals, full grown, with the capacity to reproduce already in them. Stars already in the sky, the light from these distant objects already reaching the earth, everything as though it had been, only it had not been. So breathtaking is the way God creates, that when Adam looked around for the first time at the world in which he had been placed, he had, could have no idea that the earth was a day old. No way was five days, was six days, was 10 days. He could have no idea. It was all functioning and running as though it had been like this from time immemorial. God created all things in the midst of things. And then also, also notice this part of the polemic here that Moses assiduously refuses to, re, to refer to the names of gods. This is... This is, this is this is especially obvious when he starts talking about the sun and the moon and the stars. He does not call the sun the sun because the Hebrew word for the sun was the name of a god. Not the name of a god that the Hebrews worshipped, but nevertheless, it was the name of, the god, of a god. And the moon also was the name of another god. So he calls it the greater light and the lesser light. 
And then he throws in the stars also, and the stars, sort of an afterthought, even though the stars are very much the basis for a lot of worship in the ancient world. The stars were seen as truly divine and to be worshipped in controlling the lives of human beings. But instead, Moses indicates that there's this greater light, there's a lesser light, and that the stars, and their purpose is to mark times and seasons and to provide light upon the earth. In other words, they are creatures of God made for the benefit of human beings who live on this earth. They are in no way God or even animate. They are there as a thing to serve God's purposes and ultimately for us. Completely inverting the ancient idea that all these stars and the sun and the moon are objects to be worshipped. Okay, well, I've gone along enough on this, so I'm going to stop. And we will continue on with Genesis 1 uh, tomorrow. All right, the gospel according to Mark begins very, very quickly. Mark says nothing about Jesus' nativity or childhood. He starts straight with the beginning of the coming of the kingdom of God. And that is, according to prophecy, the fact that John has come. John came to prepare the way for the Lord and to announce the coming of the kingdom of God and the coming of the one who is greater than he is. So John gets right at it and, or excuse me, Mark gets right at it. And he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, etc., etc. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, just as Isaiah had prophesied. He came to prepare the way. So right away we meet John and we find out that John's purpose is to prepare the way for another. He preaches repentance and forgiveness. He preaches repentance and forgiveness of sins um, in preparation for the coming of the kingdom. The coming of the kingdom is going to involve more than repentance and forgiveness of sins. It will certainly involve that, but it will involve more than that. John makes the point immediately that after me comes one who is mightier than I am. Okay? So if, if you think I'm something, I am only the one who is preparing the way. The real thing is yet to come. It is coming soon. I come to, to announce his, his, uh, his arrival. But nevertheless, to compare me to him, uh, there is no comparison. That he is so much greater than I am, I am not worthy to untie his shoes. Something like that is what is meant. He says, and again, making another important distinction between what John is doing and what Jesus will do. He says, I baptize you with water. That, that's, that's, what, um, that, that's what the repentance and forgiveness is for. I am cleansing you, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So in other words, I am cleansing you for the purpose of you receiving the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying. I am preparing you to receive the kingdom of God. You must be clean to receive the kingdom of God. And here comes the Messiah, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The very next thing, see how fast the gospel of Mark moves. He wastes no time, but jumps from thing to thing to thing. So immediately, Jesus appears uh, uh, there at the Jordan River, and John baptizes him. And John observes the Holy Spirit land and remain on him. And although it doesn't say it here, uh, we know that, that John understood that the one upon whom he sees the Holy Spirit remain, that is the coming one. So John baptizes and he bears witness 
that on this one, Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy Spirit remained. This is the one greater than I. This is the one. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in fact, Jesus himself receives the Holy Spirit when he is baptized. As though he is receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit so that he himself may turn around and pour it out on others. Of course, that won't happen until Pentecost. But nevertheless, we're looking forward to that. And then right away, we go to the temptation of Jesus. Jesus is baptized, given the Holy Spirit, and then driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. So here we see uh, a good um, uh, intersection with the fact that this is Ash Wednesday, the beginning of a 40-day period of fasting, a 40-day period of self-denial, a 40-day period of preparation to celebrate the Paschal Feast, that is, the Feast of the Resurrection. But before we celebrate Jesus' resurrection, we walk with him uh, in a very sober and somber way to the cross as Jesus endured temptations and, and, and uh, deprivation there in the wilderness. We practice the same kind of deprivation, um, not so severe, of course, um, in preparation to receive the fullness of the joys of the risen Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit, which he will pour out on us. So here's where we see the connection to Ash Wednesday uh, that begins our reading. We're going to be going all the way through. We're going to read every word of the Gospel of Mark. He's going to take us rapidly through uh, the, uh, uh, the ministry of Jesus. You're going to hear the word immediately over and over again. Mark uses that word, and it gives us a sense of one thing happening, then another, then another, then another. The other Gospels tend to throw in additional things, longer sermons that Jesus preaches, or discourses and things like that. Relatively little of that in Mark. Mark is going to focus on the action, on the things that Jesus did, and he is going to move us very, very quickly through Jesus' Galilean ministry to uh, the, the pinnacle of the mountain on Caesarea Philippi and uh, his transfiguration before the disciples and his trip to Jerusalem where he will be crucified, where he will rise again. Mark will take us through all of that and give us the basic pattern and the basic um, facts of Jesus' life, uh, death, and resurrection. And that's what we're looking forward to during this, uh, this season of Lent. We're going to focus on, uh, on the entire life and ministry of Jesus as given to us in the Gospel of Mark.